Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, the apostle says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner, not because of some evil deed he did. The evil deed was a, a, the message that he preached, and that is the good news that Jesus Christ is uniting people uh, in his name, in his person, to the life of God. That's the message that he preached, and it, it landed him in prison. And so, uh, really, Ephesians, if you will, pops right out at us. This Bible story, this Bible uh, text today pops right out at us in such a living way, a fresh way, when we look at the video that we just saw here together today. I want to ask you a question this morning for starters, and I'm really on the subject of identity, what you think about when you think of who are you as a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about spiritual identity, personal identity, not just your name, not your gender, but who am I? Who are you? Do you know your name? Do you, do you know your name? Think about it today. And as we ponder that, the, the question that I, I want to start with today is what inspires you to follow Christ faithfully? What inspires you to follow Christ faithfully? And I think an answer for most of us would be the power of example. It would be at least among our best answers to that question. The power of example. You look at people such as we just witnessed on that short video and we say, wow, wow, those people mean it. Their faith isn't comfortable. Their faith life is costing them something. You know, Jesus, in the word of God, told his own disciples, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. You know, that's a powerful statement. If everybody speaks well of us, we're probably not really proclaiming Christ very strongly from our lives. Following Jesus isn't a popularity contest, is it? It gets us in trouble. Not that we're looking for that. Not that we want that. Not that we want to to suffer persecution. Yet you saw the verse on there, if you looked at the verses, 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We know so little of that, if any of that, here in the West. We just are so unfamiliar with it. But Christianity was, was born in, in conflict, wasn't it? I mean, and if that suffering bothered you, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm sort of not. Because look at Jesus. Look at the suffering that he bore for you. You and I would be unforgiven sinners today if it weren't for the blood and the bruising and the brokenness that he endured for our sins. He took it for us. And so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be such a remarkable thing that a follower of Jesus Christ may encounter physical persecution or some other kind of oppression in life. It shouldn't shock us. It certainly didn't shock the first believers They, in fact, counted it all joy. They saw that as a mark of discipleship when they got scorned or when they got beat up or when they got thrown out of the temple. They counted counted it as a good thing that they they were counted worthy to bear the shame of the name of Jesus. They were that closely associated with the cause that people knew it. People knew they were Christ followers. And so taking the the heat for that wasn't a bad thing. Well, here's the question that I I come to next, is what are the great causes that we give our lives to today? I don't like to ask myself questions like this at times because I don't like to be honest. (laughs) I don't. I want to think I'm giving giving myself to great causes in life, but if I'm honest, I can think at times I'm really 
in, I can think of categories in my life where I'm not surrendered, where I'm probably not giving myself to, to, to the best of what I could be doing. And so I can't answer that question for you, but I do ask you to think about it today. You know, we're all giving ourselves to some kind of causes in life, right? And, you know, there's lots of mini causes and there's big causes. Some of us are giving ourselves to the cause of just paying off our mortgage. <laughs> we're going to work to pay. That's, our, that's my cause in life. And some of us are uh, raising a family and some of us are, are finishing education and we're doing all kinds of different things, aren't we? But think about that on a macro level for a moment. What are the really big causes that your heart is really wed to? What are the really big causes that your heart in this life is really wed to? And if you can answer that honestly, ask yourself, is, it, is, it, is that a worthy cause from a, a heavenly perspective, from an eternal perspective? A person can reach the pinnacle of success in life to, to discover it promised more than it delivered. A person can, can climb to a pinnacle to find it was the wrong pinnacle. I've met some people who've done that. They've reached the apex of what they could do in business or in some other enterprise. And they said, you know what? This isn't, this isn't at all what I thought it would be. It's lonely. It's, 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 I've paid too high a price on the way. I've lost my family or I've done this or I've lost this. We can pursue a lot of things, but they may not be worthy causes. We need to be careful, don't we, about that. And in fact, we can be sincere in what we're doing in life, feeling good about a cause, only to find out that we're doing it wrong, that it may not be even the right job. The job we're doing, if you will, the task may not be done right, even though we think it's right. I'll give you an example of that, kind of a scary, really rather scary example. Some of you would know the name of the, uh, the test pilot, Chuck Yeager, the famed test pilot. He was flying an F-86 Sabre over a lake in the Sierras. I have no idea what a Sabre looks like, but Glenn would know, because he flew B-52s. So a Sabre must have been a fast plane, I'm presuming. And he was flying that over a lake in the Sierras when he decided to buzz a friend's house near the edge of the lake. During a slow roll, he suddenly felt his aileron lock. Says Jaeger, it was a hairy moment flying about 150 feet off the ground and upside down. A lesser pilot might have panicked with fatal results, but Jaeger let off on the G's, whatever that means, pushed up the nose, and sure enough, the aileron unlocked. Climbing to 15,000 feet where it was safer, Jaeger tried the maneuver again. Every time that he rolled, the problem reoccurred. Jaeger knew three or four pilots had died under similar circumstances. But to date, investigators were puzzled as to the source of the Sabre's fatal flaw. Jaeger went to his superior with a report, and the inspectors went to work. They found that a bolt on the aileron cylinder was installed upside down. Eventually, the culprit was found in a North American plant. He was an older man on the assembly line who ignored instructions about how to insert that bolt because, by golly, he knew that bolts were supposed to be placed head up, not head down. In a sad commentary, Jaeger says that nobody ever told the man how many pilots he had killed. We can be sincere in doing a job, but be doing something that isn't, in the end of the equation, the right job, or is even hurting or fatal. Think about that. Just apply that for a moment. Let's go back to that question. What are the great causes we give ourselves to? And are we giving ourselves to causes that really matter? What are the great causes that you and I are giving our lives to? And the ones that we are giving ourselves to, do they have an eternal relevance? 
C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. His scripture point of reference for that was Psalm 127. You know that little psalm, right? The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer who builds it builds it in vain. Unless the Lord builds the city, watches the city, the watchman watches it in vain. And the point of that little psalm, that beautiful little psalm, is that unless the Lord is involved in the activity of men and women, of human beings, what they are doing is ultimately futile. It's out of date. It's not permanent. It's not lasting. It's not eternally significant. And so, and yet that's a lot of our lives, isn't it? How easy is it to to spend your days doing things that are disconnected from the life of God, from the priorities of heaven? Very easy. Very easy to do that. So we need to think more critically than that and say, am I really giving myself to things that ultimately will matter? Am I building the kingdom of God with my time, my one, one only little life that I've got here? This is a stewardship. It's a trust. And am I investing my time, my treasure, my talent, my testimony in things that have eternal significance or are they really not that significant? Important to think about that. Very important to think about that. The Apostle Paul had given himself to a cause for quite a while in his life before he became a Christian. We basically have in the book of God, the Bible, the account of a man, who I've just mentioned, who was committed to a cause, only to find out that it was out of date. It was out of date. His name as he wrote it in the New Testament was Paulos Apostolos Christu, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And before he was an apostle, he was a devout Jew who lived for the cause of keeping Judaism pure. He saw Christianity as a hoax. He saw it as an open threat to Judaism. He knew that Jesus was the proclaimed Jewish Messiah, but he didn't buy it. And he was busy persecuting those who called themselves Christians. He was busy throwing them into jail. He was busy seeing that they were put to death for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so he had an encounter one day on the road to Damascus in Syria, the same Damascus that's in Syria today. It was an encounter with the living Christ, and his cause got changed. The Lord God reordered the apostle's cause. Paul discovered his cause, a new cause on that day, and it would be a cause worth living for. And he writes to the Ephesians, who are Gentiles, not Jews, He says, for this cause, my new cause, the cause of Christ, the cause of the gospel, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you, Gentiles. Now, there's a lot behind all of that. He was a prisoner in a physical sense, so he's telling you the truth. I'm in jail. And they're worried about it. That's part of the the story behind the letter here. They're scratching their heads a bit. They're saying, this guy introduced us to the good news of of salvation, the news of Jesus, and we have come to believe on him. We are, we're alive in Christ, but Paul, our founding pastor, is in jail. He writes them this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, to explain. Now, they didn't have trains in those days, but I want to use the train as a metaphor. They're wondering if the train fell off the tracks. They're wondering, what happened, Paul? 
Did the train leave the tracks? You were teaching us. You, you led us to faith in Christ, but now you're in jail. He's addressing that, among other concerns, as he writes to them. For this cause, and remember chapter 2 where we were last week? The cause there was the uniting of one uh, of people, of Jew and Gentile, in Christ. God is uniting people together in Christ. And so that's, that's the cause here again. For this cause, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I've gone to, I'm in prison for the cause of Christ, for you Gentiles. He's saying, and he's going to go on to explain, this isn't a bad thing. The train hasn't left the tracks. Let's read on in the text to see a little bit more with clarity here. Now, he rambles a bit, and he can do that because he's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But jump down to verse 13 with me for a moment because I really want you to to hopefully track with with him better than I can. If I read through the whole thing, you might not track with him as well as as if we just look at verse 13. Look what he says at verse 13. I guess I want to make my point here to you quickly that he's assuring them, he's reassuring them. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. See, they were worried. The train, has the train left the track, Paul? Is everything okay? I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. He's saying God's in control. Yes, I'm, I'm a prisoner of, but look what he says, of Jesus Christ. So he's a prisoner, he's incarcerated. We know from the scriptures that he had two major incarcerations, two years in Caesarea Maritima. That's in Israel. That's on the coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea. Some of you have been there with us. That's, that's where he was imprisoned for two years on his way to Rome. Then he had another two-year imprisonment in Rome. He had made his appeal to Nero, the emperor Nero, when the, when the Jews in Jerusalem had him, basically, they were trying to kill him, right? You remember that from the book of Acts. So those were his major imprisonments. But he doesn't consider himself a prisoner of the emperor, ultimately, or of the state, What does the text say? Prisoner of Jesus. He had, in a sense, a dual prisoner status, and he's not bemoaning it. This guy knows his cause. He knows his identity. He's saying, I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles, for the benefit, for this cause, for the cause of the gospel, for you, for God's love for you. I'm in prison, but really, I'm in prison for Jesus, for doing the mission that I'm called, that I'm committed to doing. So he's a prisoner of the state, yes, on one hand, but he sees his real prison uh, status, if you will, as a prisoner of Jesus. He says, I'm a, I'm a slave to Christ. He actually uses that language throughout the New Testament. I'm a doulos is the Greek word. I'm a slave of Jesus. And he's not bemoaning it like, oh, I'm a slave of Jesus. No, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a willing servant. I'm a willing slave of Jesus Christ. So he's assuring them that his status is okay. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and I'm in prison for your benefit. God is using where I'm at for the proclamation of his gospel. It's all good, he says. It's all good. So that's some context here as we move along in this passage. He, he knew his cause, and so he was willing to, to gladly pay the price of following Christ. Would you say these few words with me? I'm going to say it, and then you can say it with me. A great cause is costly. Let's say it together. A great cause is costly. It is. Paul said to the Corinthians these words, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, 
and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone, often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. A great cause is costly, indeed. And doesn't that just put light, fresh light, when we look at those words into what he said, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. There's a man who knows his cause, but he's, he's accepting that. He's accepting it. Thomas Schreiner, a, a really great New Testament scholar, said the Apostle Paul was no ivory tower theologian. He was a great theologian, but he was a risk-taking missionary who suffered to bring the good news revealed to him on the Damascus Road to the ends of the earth. And so like him, like Paul, we are called to an eternal cause. Now you and I don't have the Apostle Paul's calling. We don't have his gifts, right? His spiritual gifts. He lived 2,000 years ago, thereabouts. But you know what we have in common with him? We have a lot in common with him, actually. We, you, me, we, and him, we live on the same side of the cross of Jesus. We're not pre-cross, we're we're post-cross. We live on this side of, of the coming of Christ, just like he did. We understand that Jesus of Nazareth is the chosen Messiah, was God's Messiah, was, was put to death. We're celebrating his death and his resurrection today here with communion. We understand that same truth, the power of, of the message that Paul preached. We have the same message. Now, some of you say to me today, well, I'm not a preacher. Well, that'd be, be honest. That's true. Most of us aren't called to be preachers like Paul. I'm not called to be an apostle like Paul was. But you know what we're all called to be? Witnesses. Witnesses. We're all called to be a witness of what we know is true about God, about Jesus Christ. That's something we can all say yes to. We can all, we can all, as Jesus said, let our light shine. We can all, we're all made alive in Christ to live with him forever. That, talk about an eternal cause. Your life here on this earth is just a blip compared to what's coming. This is just the foretaste of glory divine, what you're tasting here on your best day. You, you are unified with God's forever family right now if you're in Christ. You are part now of the new society, God's people, uh, the church, people from, from ages past to today to ages yet to come that are, are in Christ. How amazing is that? And you today are being built up in the, in the context of this new society. That's the local church to grow up in Christ, to be stronger in him today than you were at this time last year, uh, and to be stronger next year than you were at this time this year, uh, at the same time this year. And your cause includes, like Paul's, a specific mission. Now Paul, in those opening verses, which I didn't read for you, but you can look with me at those, he talks at length about a mystery. Now in the Greek of, of the first century, the word mystery, our word mystery comes from that word, it's mysterion in Greek, it had a little different meaning. When you and I say, man, I'm going to read a mystery novel, or I see that's a mystery to me, we're saying there's something I don't get about that, there's something unknown to me in a mystery, there's something hidden. But in New Testament usage, mysterion was, was, was more of an open secret. When Paul says, I'm going to talk to you about a mystery, he wasn't saying, I'm keeping it hidden. When he used it in the original language of the New Testament, and in Greek, of course, he was saying this is an open secret now. What was once hidden is now open. There's no more mystery, in other words. So I don't want you to read a 21st century understanding into the 1st century meaning of what he's saying here as we look real briefly at these words. Starting at verse 2, he says, Assuming you have heard of the stewardship 
of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's saying, I'm assuming that you've heard of the, the, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mysterion, mystery, was made known to me by revelation. He's saying, God gave me a revelation of something that was previously hidden concerning you people, you non-Jews. As I have written briefly, he says, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight, here it is again, into the mysterion of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but here it is, as it has now been revealed, see, open secret, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he says it again, verse 6, this open secret, this mysterion, is that, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That must have been music to their ears. Because in the first century, they thought they were nobodies. They knew they weren't Jews. They knew that they, that they had nothing to do with the, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. They felt despised by Judaism. And Paul is saying, guess what? God's son, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, came for you too. And together we are one people in him. And I'm Jewish, and I'm a believer in Jesus, and I'm, I'm the apostle, the Jewish uh, apostle sent to the Gentiles. He says, God's got his arms open wide to you. That must have been music to their ears because they felt so ostracized. They felt so left out. And he, this must have been music to their ears. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He says, I didn't make myself a minister. Nobody does that. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. It's all him. God cares for you, he says. He's commissioned me to come to you, to me, to, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. And that wasn't false humility. He was humble. He says, I'm the least of all saints. But this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to, to light to everyone what is the plan, there it is again, of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Oh, there's more here that we want to talk about, but I've got to hum along. Hum along. So he's excited. I'm excited. He wants to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. You say, well, I'm not called to preach. I say, be a witness. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. He said that. And he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And Jesus, Jesus did more than that. He says, you are the light of the world. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friend, let your light shine for Jesus. In your home life, your work life, your school life, your don't be a category Christian, you know, Sunday morning, I'm a Christian here. And then we kind of close that little compartment. And everywhere else, we're just kind of Christian incognito. <laughs> Christian incognito. I, I left tracks once at this place that I used to work when I was in college, Bible tracks. Kind of got me in trouble now and then, but that's okay. It was, I'd do it again. And one of the guys that found one of the tracks uh, pulled me over to his workstation once, and he had one of these big uh, work, uh, beautiful workbenches, snap-on tool things, you know, and all these different boxes. And he opened up one of the tiny compartments and he pulled out one of the tracks. He summoned me over to his workstation and he opened up this little box and he pulled out this little track. He goes, did you leave this? Did you leave this up in the men's room a long time ago? 
And he was being really quiet about it. And I said, yeah, I did. No, I, I, wasn't, I didn't whisper. I said, yeah, I did. Well, I'm a Christian too. I said, why are we whispering? <laughs> Let's go have lunch. <laughs> we went and had lunch. And he recommitted his heart to Christ that day. He went off to youth, uh, to be a youth pastor later. But he was kind of hiding his gifts there for a while. Just kind of got afraid, I guess, to, to let his light shine. You know, kind of put it in the little compartment of the snap-on tool thing. I don't know. We all do that. We stick, we kind of, we just hide. And I'm out of time. Oh. I wish I could preach till noon, but I can't. And you'd leave anyway, right? Look at, look at the riches of Christ. In verse 8, Ephesians 3.8, you say, well, what do, I, what do I tell people in my witness about Jesus? Well, you tell them about the riches of Jesus Christ, that, that he regenerates us from death, from eternal death, that there's, there's victorious life, enthronement with Christ. The Bible in Ephesians says that we are right now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That means every person who's in Christ today already has one foot in eternity. Think about that. When you're having a bad day, just remind yourself, man, I got one foot in eternity already. Christ has already seated me in the heavenly places. I can't fully grasp what that means, but that's pretty amazing. My life's not going to be wasted. It's going to end well because I'm going to be standing with the king. But boy, now I just need to live for him. I need to remember who I am, my identity in him. And on goes the list. And all of that is a foretaste of yet more riches to come, namely the riches of the glory of the inheritance which God will give to all of his people on the last day. The best is yet to come. And the last verse of this short section we're looking at together reminds us that as we live out our identity in Christ, we want to remember to do it for the right reasons, not to look good, not to make it be anything about us. Paul shows us how. We want to exercise compassion over concern for ourselves. Look at Paul says in verse 13. I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. I'm doing this willingly, and this is for your good. What I'm going through is for your good. This is for your glory. He has no agenda here to make himself be anything. He knows that he's nothing. That's so beautiful. So understand your identity, my friend. You're called to an eternal cause in Christ that includes a specific mission to tell others about the riches of Christ as God's witness. It includes, obviously, showing compassion over self-concern. And you know where, where we learn how to do all of this? Here, in the context of the local church. We need the body. You don't learn this alone. You don't experiment and just kind of wing this. You do it together. You grow together. You, 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 you partner with other people. You grow up in Christ in the body. So we need the local church. And that's what God has given us.